Would you open as though it's going to get, I wish it was going to get easier. If you'd open your Bibles to Romans 9, <laughs> page 809. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles, it's page 809. This is, uh, we've been in Romans, this is now the third year, so we're slowly working ourselves through Romans year after year. One year was one through, chapters 1 through 4, last year is chapters 5 through 8, this year is chapters 9 through 11, which I will be honest with you, I almost skipped. Um, if it wasn't for the fact that the Bible says all of Scripture is God-breathed and good and useful, if, I, if God himself had not said, don't skip it, I'd have skipped it because it's not fun scripture. Or this. Actually, this is the problem. Part of the room is going to, for the next six to seven weeks, been like, ah, I don't, I don't even like to think like this. It's just, it's, you're being in, in forcibly brought into maybe categories of thought that you're not a big fan of. Okay? Some portion of this room, and you typically will know who you are, know that many a church squabble has occurred on these three pages. Okay, the church, God's big church, has managed to bloody itself over these three pages and others. Uh, so some people are, uh, you're naturally amped up like, oh yeah, 9 to 11, here we go. I don't, I'm not excited about that. And I, I do want to, to those of you who we get a week or two into this and you're like, you know, I don't like to think about things like how does God choose who and what? How, God's will, man's will, sovereignty, all those things. I just want to say it's part of God's word. And we're going to walk into it together. We're going to be faithful. And, and uh, I, it matters. I believe it's relevant uh, for now. But I think we're doing a hard work here. The sermon is entitled, How Unsearchable, How Inscrutable, which is a passage out of Romans 11. I'll read to you in a second. If you, re you remember, uh, it's a childish game almost every child plays. Um, it's called the Y game, and it, you just invent it. It just exists. A kid says to his dad or mom, uh, Mom, can we go to Rita's? After practice, can we go to Rita's, get water ice? And the mom says, no. This is when the why game starts. Well, why? Right? right? And it, it's already not a game for the parent. It's a game for the child. It's not a game for the parent. So the parent, but the parent plays along a little bit. Maybe a few sufficient whys will satisfy the game. So you say, well, we can't go to Rita's because we haven't had dinner yet. It's five o'clock and dinner's waiting. So we're not going to do Rita's. Well, I'll eat my dinner. Why, why, why can't we get another why? Why? Right? Your brothers and your sisters aren't here. That would feel unfair. But why? They got to go. How many iterations of why? Until you, you finally get to why is the sky blue, right? You get wide. You get wide to death. And eventually, what do you say? Because I said so. Or because. If you have the I said so card, you play it. Because I said so. Which is, I am not playing this game fundamentally, your why asking is a submission issue. That's all that's happening here is let's not, let's not banter around about the questioning. Your questioning is simply a refusal to submit to the authority placed over you, okay? This 
9 through 11 is sort of happening. Paul is responding to levels of questions from his Israelite brethren. He's assuming they're asking. Okay, so he's writing a letter, but he knows the questions that his kinsmen are asking him. And he's, he's in a rhetorical way, writing their questions and responding to their questions. And then writing their counter questions. Well, if he did that, well, why wouldn't he do that? And, then why would, and Paul's trying to carefully go through and, and, and answer these questions, but eventually he ends here. This is the end of this this narrative, it's uh, 1133, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Inscrutable means not subject to scrutiny. Unknowable. Now, it says, let me read it again. O is an O-H comma. The depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. Now, you could say it in a childish way, like, oh, how unsearchable. But this is actually worship. Paul gets to a place where he's saying, ultimately saying to the readers, you cannot go where the answer to this question lies. And you have to worship. You need to, you're going to reach the place where your mind or your spirit or the capacity of who you are will not be able to fully appreciate what God's done. God's, the logic, if such a thing can be said, the logic and mind and wisdom and power of God exceeds our capacity. So that things are happening that are beyond our ability to search and scrutinize. And our role is to worship him. So what I'm saying is in this series, we're going to be in a list of questions where you may be tempted to why the Lord and why, and well, why not, and why this, and why that. It eventually ends with he's unsearchable, he's inscrutable, you need to worship. I mean, because he said so. That's... This is where the, the, one of the roles, the unique roles that Romans 9 through 11 plays is bringing us like the reason and the mind and our heart, bringing it as deep as it goes and realizing you cannot go any farther. And God said so. All right, let me show you. We're going to just try to do 13 verses today. Um, so if you look at chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, let me just read 1 to 3 real quickly, and then I'll place a little bit of context as to where we are. Paul writes, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul just said, I would stand in the place of hell for my fellow Israelites if I could. And he said it. That word accursed is anathema. I would, but I were subject to wrath and destruction of God. That's a pretty profound expression of grief. So you're thinking, well, how, does this, how do we end up here? I th what Paul's anticipating, 
So obviously we're in Romans 9, so there's eight chapters of Romans that have already transpired. And in these chapters, Paul has gone through the nature of God, the nature of man, how sin works, our inability to self-atone or to earn grace, but rather grace is exactly that. It's unmerited favor that we must cry out to God to receive if we hope to be seen as righteous, and that righteousness, to be standing right before the Lord, is a gift of Christ to us. It's an alien idea that is placed upon us. And throughout all of these eight chapters, often Paul is worried about how the Jew will receive this and the Gentile. Gentile means non-Jew. So the Jew and the rest of the world will receive this message. So that in the beginning of Romans, it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. That's kind of the thesis of this book. Is how does God's work for salvation work among the Jew and among the Gentile? But to get here, Paul has systematically been shaking the tree of Israel, pointing out you've made a mistake there, and that's why you've missed it. And you're making a mistake there, and that's why you've missed it. And you're making a mistake there. And you know when somebody, when you have somebody who's doing this just tweaking everything you think about yourself, it's just easier to assume he doesn't love you. When we don't want to hear what someone has to say, we just assume they don't have us in mind, that, they're, that they are bad. This is kind of where Paul is. Paul has for eight chapters challenged classical Hebrew thinking, and so now he's kind of answering what he thinks is probably the disposition of their soul, which is Paul's kind of a, a traitor. He's a turncoat. Paul has left the Jewish life to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He said that, by the way. He said, I'm apostle to the Gentiles. He's taken Jewish phrases like adoption, about heirs, being sons of God, co-heirs with Christ. He's taken Hebrew thinking, and he's baptized the world with those words. And I think at some point it may be an easy route for the Jewish listeners to say, Paul is simply no longer Jewish. And that's why he comes in with these words. He says, no longer Jewish. My heart is sick with grief that my brethren are missing this. I would that I were anathema that they might receive God. So it's a healing word. It's a healing word for him to say, listen, I'm not saying these things because I don't like you. And there's still value. Look at four and five. So not only is he still a kinsman, right, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsman according to the flesh in verse three, look at four through six, or four and five. He says, it's also still of great privilege to consider myself a Jew. They are the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Like he's saying, not only do I grieve for my kinsmen, but it is not as though the way of the Israelites has become obsolete. 
or meaningless. It's not out with the old, in with the new. Paul is saying, from them and among them are things of marvelous value. Paul is saying they were adopted. And the Lord speaks in the Old Testament about you among all the peoples. I've chosen you to be my child among all the peoples. So he's saying that's valid. There's truth in that. He says, among you is the glory, the, the Shekinah glory. The glory of God appeared among them and no one else. The covenants, they had covenants. No one else had covenants. Law, worship, promises. No one else had these things. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, Him very self came from this race of people, at least through the flesh, He says. Paul is saying, not only does it grieve me, not only am I not a turncoat, and not only does it grieve me that my kinsmen, according to the flesh, my, my fellow Israelites, that they're not coming, that they, they've kind of wholesale, they're in the process of dismissing Christ because of the implications of the gospel. He says, not only does that grieve me, but it is, I don't even think that their life is irrelevant. Even when I critique it, I'm not toppling it. I'm, it's not out with the old, in with the new for him. It's the fulfillment of the old. We think, by the way, we take for granted that the Old Testament is in this book. <laughs> it's passages like this that lobbied for the Old Testament to remain in this book. Because there was a point when the church said, what, what need have we for that? And there were important godly people who said, that is this. They are the same when read through Christ. So here, you might assume a question, right? He's, um, he's presuming a question going into six. You can imagine if he's speaking to a very religious studious, observant Jewish community who's entertaining Christ, but the moment he entertains Christ, the idea pushes on things that matter to them. It pushes on their holy days. It pushes on their right of circumcision. It pushes on laws of cleanliness. It pushes on the availability of the gospel to the Gentile world who in their estimation is filthy with sin. It's pushing on a lot of these ideas for them. And then they're dealing with the fact that by the time you're in Romans 9, they're dealing with the fact that why is it, if we are people of privilege, why is it that we are not accepting Jesus? Why is it that on the whole, the Jewish people said no? And Paul kind of presumes this question. Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, is it a soft thought in someone's mind that maybe, I mean, you look out, it looks like a failure. I mean, this, this could be like, imagine a church that tries to do everything right, and yet the numbers dwindle. Okay? They might need to hear a word from the Lord, like it's not as though the word of God has failed. God hasn't failed here. Nothing's gone wrong here, Paul says. 
Let me read 6 through 9. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I, shall, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Now, you can tell Paul is speaking with his Jewish kinsmen in mind, so he's using Jewish ideas and parts of the Jewish story to teach but he's saying something very profound. He starts easy. He starts easy and then he wades deep. So the first thing someone might say is, well, has the word of God failed? Because a lot of... Doesn't seem like the Hebrews have accepted. Doesn't seem like they're in the covenant. And he says, no, it's not like it's failed. And he's, he kind of starts with this very common sense thing. Not every person who says they're a Jew is a Jew. Right? just like not everybody who comes to this church is Christian. Don't fool yourself, right? That's kind of what he's saying. It's shallow into the pool. First of all, God hasn't failed because we can't look at the whole crowd and say God has to save the whole crowd because the whole crowd doesn't love God. That's what he's saying. First of all, not, not everyone who's a child of Abraham is really a child of Abraham. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of what he's doing, okay? And then he follows it up with some substance, uncomfortable substance, for the Jews. He brings up the story of Isaac. He brings up the story of Isaac, which in their mind conjures up the entire episode of Isaac and Ishmael, right? So the Lord, remember the story, Abraham, God promises he's going to give Abraham a son. Abraham waits and he waits and he waits and he can't handle it any longer. So after talking with Sarah, he takes Sarah's maidservant and has a son through the maidservant. That son's name is Ishmael. That was Abraham managing the problem himself, okay? That is what the Bible would call a child by the flesh, is that was merely a biological challenge in Abraham's mind, okay? But the Lord said, it's not Ishmael. I don't care what you did. It's not Ishmael. I, I said I was going to give you a son, and I'm going to give you a son. I made a promise that I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you a son. I'm just going to wait until there's no earthly possible way that the biology would work, and I'm going to give it to you. So you know that it's not a child of the flesh. It's a child of the promise. It's a miracle child. So he waits until Abraham is 100 years old, and he gives Isaac through Sarah. And Paul uses this logic among the Jews. He says, listen, not every descendant of Abraham is a child of the promise. Didn't Abraham have a couple's kids? Actually, he had more by another woman later on. But the, he's saying, listen, if this was an issue of a descended inheritance, well, then Ishmael would have had it. But he says, it's not an issue of descended inheritance. It's an issue of the promise. In other words, to a people that have grown accustomed to descend, the descending in the faith, inheriting the faith through their bloodline, through the bloodline and work of circumcision, all these things, have grown very accustomed to, I am because my parents were, and they are because of their forefathers. When that linear path 
over time that's traced by blood has become firmly entrenched in the people, Paul is reminding them, listen, we were never part of God based upon that. Never. We started as a child of the promise. We were not sons of Ishmael. We were sons of Isaac. We don't belong to God because of effort and because of human things. Rather, we belong to God because God made a promise and God bore fruit through that promise. It would be, it has a value at an individual level, and I think a lot of this conversation is happening at multiple levels, but at an individual level, it's, it's saying this, listen, you don't belong to Jesus because of your effort, you belong to Jesus because you hold on to the promise. Okay? At a slightly deeper level, it's almost a, it's almost a Jewish, um, a Hebrew backhanded statement. He's saying to the sons of Isaac, you're behaving like Ishmael. It has a little bit of that in it. You who came from Isaac are trying to claim the rights of this promise because you were the firstborn when compared to the Gentiles. You're saying, why does he get to go to the whole world? We were here. We've been here the whole time. And he's saying, that sounds awful Ishmaelish. Can't do that. He does it again here in 10 to 13. Let me, let me read this. He picks the patriarchs. He goes straight to the heart of their issue. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that's an electric sentence. Um, we'll get to that in a second. This is, this is the next story. So if you remember, Abraham had Isaac by the promise, and then Isaac marries Rebekah, and Rebekah was also barren, just like Sarah was. And God gave her twins. And God spoke a prophecy over her when she was pregnant that said the older will serve the younger so that she knew that the children in her womb, already the Lord had assigned a special role to the younger child over the older child. Jacob would rule over Esau. That's, that's what was said. And Paul's kind of using this because I, you can imagine when Paul would use Sarah and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael, that people who didn't want to agree with this would say, well, yeah, well, this Hagar wasn't really the wife. Sarah was the wife, so the truth is, or they might say, yeah, well, Ishmael didn't turn out that well, so maybe God went to Isaac because he was better. And Paul uses this one to say, the very next generation, the same thing happens, though this time from the same mother, and this time there was nothing between the two children that delineated anything at all. Before they had done anything good or bad, God had made this call. God made this call before they were born. He's saying, God's will is driving this thing. God decided, quote, Jacob I will love and Esau I will hate. Now, in the Hebrew, he's quoting Malachi 1 there, okay? Which actually is a verse telling Israel how much God loves them. 
but in this, this idea, when the Hebrew sometimes uses love-hate, it's not the, trying to describe the emotion of God. It's trying to create an awareness of the disparity of God. Like this. This is a good Mother's Day passage right here. This is Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, we know God doesn't, Jesus is not telling us to hate our moms. We know that. We know he's not saying hate your brother and sister. Hate yourself. Christians, go hate yourself. What, what, Jesus is using the very same idiom to say, the way you view God in light of yourself is very important. That the call on the Christian is to prefer the Lord so much more than they would prefer themselves or their family, or that they would be loyal to God super abundantly more than they would be loyal to others. That's what he's saying here. This is God in his wisdom decided to put the promise on Jacob and not on Esau. And we would say, why? Why did God do that? And God says, because. I did it because. I mean, look at the, pa the passage here says, this is verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of him who works, but because of him who calls. That's a long way of saying because. God has a purpose. His purpose, in other words, God has a Now, I, this is not a discussion of the salvation of Esau or Jacob, okay? There was a promise given to Abraham. That promise was, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And that promise was passed to Isaac. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And that promise was passed to, es not Esau, Jacob, the whole world through you. That path of the promise, why did that path of the promise zigzag in an unlikely way? Because. God did it because. Why are we here in the United States where the gospel flows freely? I mean, we act as though there's persecution, but the reality is the gospel is a free-flowing idea that we're embracing far less realistically than we're being persecuted about. We're recreating in the freedom of the gospel in this country. How is it that the gospel is so blessedly here among us and, and not in many other places of the world. Why is that? Because he is unsearchable, he is inscrutable, and we worship. There's places that we're going to go where we're going to have these why questions, you know, and and sometimes when we get to a why question and we don't get an answer, I think one decision, it ends up being a crossroads, an intellectual crossroads going, if I can't get an answer, I can't worship. And that's sometimes how people feel. Like if I don't have the answer, like Thomas, if I don't put my hand in his wounds and feel them, it didn't happen. And sometimes the Lord says, well, you don't get the answer until you worship. That there's a sense of God doesn't owe us. God doesn't owe us the explanation of the tide of his will and where it goes, how he's going to tell his story. He seems 
over time to have a concern that his story does not pass consistently through the strong and the brave and the beautiful, but rather that his victorious story is told through the weak and the frail and the faithful. It doesn't play by our rules. This is a good stopping point. I, I think, you know, what's relevant? What, how do I take this into this week? You know, for one, this is a this teaching humbles us. It should humble us. Why has God's grace, unique and special grace, been on this fellowship? You know, I once was in a member of a church that was 300 years old. There were Revolutionary War veterans in the cemetery. They were way too proud of that, that church was. Way too proud, and God judged it. I watched it in, my, in our lifespan. We've watched that church implode because the proudest thing that they were was in their age. It's this Jewish argument. Things preserve and persevere because God is in them. And the moment they begin to think of an inheritance based on their effort and their time, ooh, God will cut them out. So may we, may we just be humble as we think about our lives, our families, if Christ has been in your family for many, many generations, if you have a long history of looking for it, I would, I would be humble to say that does not mean that you can sit back and that your children are just going to start reading the Word. Likewise, if you're sitting here and you come from a troubled past and it's Mother's Day, but you can't think of a decent thing about your mother because you didn't know her and you have all this muck and this mire and things that are unattractive, I'm here to say that says nothing about what God can do in your line. Nothing at all. In fact, God seems to make a hobby of surprising us by the ways he glorifies things that were inconsequentially small. So I would say you are no different. You are every bit as worthy or unworthy as a vessel of God as the Pope himself. May we be humble in that. Let me pray and... Lord, as we set out uh, on this admittedly difficult journey, I pray you'd give us a humble heart to worship you even when your answers cannot satisfy us, Lord. Not because we're too big for your answers, but because your answers are in a place that we cannot go. Remind us of that, Lord. Remind us that you're bigger than us. Remind us that uh, you, you live and move and act in ways that are unsearchable and are not subject to scrutiny. Bless us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.